production. Today, we chat with Dr. Phil. Nope, not that Dr. Phil. Our Dr. Phil is a Florida-based heart surgeon who's doing everything he can to keep patients off his operating table. In other words, he doesn't want any clients. It's a heart-stopping. Maybe that should read Heart Starting, episode 575 of the 12-year-old, award-winning, small business, big marketing podcast. Well, I said, welcome to a small business marketing show, where successful small business owners share their souls. To take your marketing straight to the lead, now here's your host, Mr. Tim Reed. And welcome back to your weekly dose of marketing medicine. I'm your host, Timbo Reed, and I have an insatiable curiosity for uncovering marketing strategies and ideas that help beautiful businesses just like yours to grow. You, so much more importantly, well, you're a motivated business owner ready to crank out some great marketing. To build that beautiful business of yours into the empire, it absolutely deserves to be. And guess what? That's why this podcast exists. So you, my friend, are in the right place. As per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Quick update, the regional Queensland series is over. I hope you loved it. I absolutely loved bringing it to you. And I'd just like to ask you a favour. If you did love it, could you send me a note, you know, an email or a voicemail and let me know your thoughts. It doesn't have to be long. You can just say, Timbo, that was unreal. Can we have more of that? My email, tim at timreid, reid.com.au, or you can give us a buzz and leave a message on the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline, 0480 015 150, and let me know your thoughts on the last eight episodes where we showcased wonderful businesses in regional Queensland. Now, For as long as Dr. Philip Ovadia can remember, he was overweight as a child, as a teenager, as a medical student, even as a cardiac surgeon. Then one day, when he was making the rounds in the hospital he was working at, he was convinced he was having a heart attack. Fortunately, it was just severe heartburn. However, that incident scared him into action. He lost all the weight he needed to, and that's easier said than done from personal experience, then set off on a journey to end obesity and keep others off his operating table. And this is where it gets interesting. Here's a guy who's dedicated years of his life to becoming a heart surgeon. He's saving lives by performing open heart surgery on a daily basis and, like all surgeons, earning a pretty damn good income. It would appear from the outside that Dr. Phil was living the dream but he was anything but in flow. What he really wanted was no clients, no patients. So over recent years, he finds himself choosing to operate less and less and instead coaching people to optimise their metabolic health in order to avoid heart issues and cure their diabetes. (laughs) Essentially, he's becoming a wellbeing coach. What an interesting career progression. So much so that he's written a book, titled Stay Off My Operating Table, A Heart Surgeon's Metabolic Health Guide to Lose Weight, prevent disease, and feel your best every day. He does one-on-one coaching. He has an online forum, podcast, blog, newsletter. The guy literally is a marketing machine. I began asking Dr. Phil why he became a heart surgeon in the first place. I 
actually always knew I wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, when you ask my parents when I was very young and people would ask me what I wanted to do, I would always say I wanted to be a surgeon. I didn't actually say I wanted to be a doctor. And, you know, this is what at like four or five years old when I couldn't really have had any idea about what a surgeon actually was. But uh, as I went through school and my education, that desire persisted. And then I got into medical school and I got into my medical training. And surgery is what I always enjoyed the most. And finally, as I got towards the end of the process and had to pick a specialty within surgery, I selected heart surgery because, again, I found it the most challenging, the most interesting. It is both kind of technically challenging, the surgeries that we do, and also the physiology, you know, that goes along with it. You're really seeing and working on the inner workings of the body. So I just, you know, continue to this day to find it fascinating and I, you know, feel blessed every day to be able to help patients in that way. I, I'm fascinated talking to people who are 100% on purpose in their life and in their business life. You, you would appear to be that person, correct? Well, I think so. And I think that is starting to take on a new dimension, a new component as we're going to get into. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I feel that my kind of mission in life is to be able to serve people and to be able to help people with their health. And do being a heart surgeon now for the past, you know, 15 years has certainly fulfilled that. But, you know, I realize that there's more to it now. And that's why I'm shifting my focus a little bit, still continuing to work as a heart surgeon, but also focusing on helping people prevent heart disease and stay off my operating table. We're absolutely here to, to talk business and marketing. There are a couple of things I think we can learn from you as a heart surgeon before we get stuck into that. I'm actually fascinated that I even have the opportunity to talk to a cardiac surgeon for 45, 50 minutes because I've just had two operations in the last two months. Getting into a surgeon is difficult. Getting time with a surgeon is difficult. When you get time with a surgeon, they are busy people. So thank you for, for making the time. Um, what we can learn from you as a cardiac surgeon, I reckon there's, there's a lot from a business point of view, but describe the first time you operated solo because that to me just seems an incredibly scary proposition. It is and it isn't because, you know, the way that the training system is, is that you, you are well prepared for it. So realize that, you know, before I did any solo operations as a heart surgeon, I spent seven years, you know, being trained as a surgeon under mentors in the States. You know, we call that internship and residency. I know it has a little bit of a different uh, process, uh, you know, overseas. But when it got to that time that it was truly me, you know, it was my responsibility. And, you know, I wasn't working under anyone anymore. Certainly, you know, it does take on a different level. Uh, but thankfully, you know, I had trained under good mentors, and I felt well prepared. And the first surgery went well. And most of the others since then have continued to go well. What's the longest operation you've had to uh, endure? Um, you know, we occasionally do surgeries that are, you know, 12, even up to 14 hours. There are some very complex uh, surgeries that we uh, perform. But for the most part, they tend to be around four to six hours. 14 hours on your feet doing something where someone's life is at risk. How does one stand 
on one's feet for 14 hours without losing the plot. Yeah, you know, uh, and and uh, we will occasionally take breaks, you know, oftentimes, you know, operations like that, there are kind of multiple surgeons working together sometimes. But, you know, you just do what you have to do and you're focused on the patient. And when you're in the midst of it, you know, time sort of suspends itself a little bit. You know, part of it is getting into kind of that flow state that people talk about that you're just doing what you know, you know, how to do. And some of it, quite frankly, is just you are so focused on, you know, saving the life of that patient, your concerns uh, become secondary. Yeah, got it. So, so Phil, you do your study, you do your internship, you, I guess, work under a surgeon for a period of time. I'm guessing they don't teach business at medical school as they don't teach business at every other, you know, trade school or whatever school. It's sort of, it's sort of almost, it assumes that you know what to do when it comes to running a business. What was your trigger for starting your own practice versus working under someone else? Well, so, you know, as a heart surgeon, I actually have always been employed by someone else, usually by a hospital. And so the, you know, while there is sort of a business component to it, you know, it's sort of a marginal consideration. But more recently, you know, when I started to realize the importance of preventative efforts, keeping people healthy and trying to teach people to stay off my operating table, then it became time to launch my own business. And that has certainly been a new experience. But, you know, one of the I reached out to, you know, kind of other mentors, you know, that could show me the business world. And, you know, one of them made a very astute point to me. And that was that even as a surgeon, I was always selling, you know, I was always selling myself. I had to reassure the patients and their families that they were in good hands. And, you know, while it may not be the traditional marketplace, you know, that, that, we deal with in other businesses that people, you know, shop around and can go elsewhere. It was still, you know, it was still marketing skills that I was using. And so realizing that made it easier to sort of make that transition into a more traditional business arrangement now uh, that I have alongside, you know, my continued practice as a heart surgeon. Just to understand that, Phil, you have, you are employed by a hospital, to be their, their heart surgeon. that So you're an employee at that level. Your business is your coaching business where you are coaching uh, people to stay off your operating table. And that's the business side of things, correct? Correct, yeah. It's actually a full medical practice, but it's a you know private practice that I own and run uh, where I have patients that I'm working with them to, you know, prevent heart disease or, or manage their heart disease without, you know, the need for operations. As a surgeon, it is a difficult thing because there's only, I guess it's the same in America as it is in Australia. You can't market results. You can't market benefits. You can only say what you do and what issues it addresses, I'm guessing, in terms of compliance. So marketing's a little bit tricky. That said, you as a surgeon seem to be doing a fairly good job at marketing yourself. I, I, you know, you've got a podcast, you've got a blog, you do videos, you've got a newsletter, you've got a book. So are, are you walking, are you constantly walking a fine line of like, oh, I hope they don't call me out on this? Well, you know, there is a little bit of that and there's the other consideration that I'm really not that good a businessman because one side of my business is trying to put the other side out of business, essentially. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I always say that, you know, I will consider that a success if one day there are truly no more heart surgeries for me to do. The, the unfortunate reality is, is that, you know, there are more than enough heart surgeries for me and every other heart surgeon, you know, both in the United States and worldwide, because heart disease is the number one killer in the United States and worldwide. And it has been that way for 20 plus years, and it shows no signs of slowing down. So, you know, I am trying to help as many individuals as I can to learn the true causes of heart disease and, you know, how to live their life, how to eat, how to, you know, do all the other things in their life to help them avoid heart disease and not need that heart operation. Where did the idea, Phil, come to you to be the, I don't even know what the word is, is it the anti-cardiac surgeon where you are? You're trying to keep people off the operating table? Did Were you just getting so frustrated of people coming through your clinic with issues that could have so easily been avoided that you've gone, right, time to do something about this? Describe the moment when that idea came to you. Yeah, well, it really started with my own journey because I had found myself a number of years ago where I was going to end up on my own operating table. I was morbidly obese. I weighed 100 pounds more than I do now. I was pre-diabetic, and I realized I was headed down the same path as my patients. But at the same time, the advice that I had been giving them, the advice that I had learned in medical school, was failing me you know, the eat less, move more, eat a low-fat diet, uh, kind of the U.S. dietary, you know, food pyramid that we're all so familiar with was not working for me, just as I saw it not work for the majority of my patients, but it's all that I knew what to do at that point. Uh, Thankfully, I started to come across some alternative ideas around what we eat and how they influence our health, and I was able to improve my own health I ultimately lost 100 pounds. I've maintained that weight loss now for over five years. And at that point, I felt compelled to get this information out to more and more people. And unfortunately, the way the medical system is set up, you know, within my role as a heart surgeon, I wasn't able to effectively do that. You know, I only have limited contact with the patients around the time that they're having surgery. So that, that's what really compelled me to add this extra dimension to my professional life and, and start the new sort of business venture. If you don't mind me asking, how, how did you get to the point of being morbidly obese? I mean, we, the old plumber with the squeaky tap syndrome is quite common. You know, uh, you, you give everyone else the love and, and resource they need to get better, but you don't do it yourself. Just You just sort of got out of control. One day you sort of looked in the mirror and gone, oh, what happened there? Well, you know, it really was a lifelong, you know, issue for me. I was overweight as a child. I got more and more obese as I, you know, went through uh, college and medical school. And, you know, again, it was the combination of, it is a very stressful life. You know, it is a lot of long hours and not paying attention to your own well-being certainly uh, plays a part in it. But ultimately, you know, the advice that we had been giving as a society, the advice that I had learned to give my patients, you know, in medical school and in the early, early part of my career turns out to be bad advice. 
and the U.S. food pyramid, which is now really the worldwide food pyramid of eating heavily processed food, lots of grains, uh, you know, wheat, bread and pasta being sort of the, the, the base of the pyramid, the, the most, you know, plentiful foods that we're supposed to eat. That is bad advice. Unfortunately, you know, our whole system has perpetuated that advice. But when I came to realize that that was bad advice and, you know, there was alternative thoughts, alternative ideas on how to be healthy, and those were the ideas that ended up working for me. And then I started recommending it to my patients and I saw it work for them. And, you know, I couldn't, at this point, I can't hold my tongue about that. Yeah, that's right. I think you forgot to uh, include the answer to my question as to how you became morbidly obese. You, you probably also started to earn quite a good income and the Wagyu uh, steak became very accessible on a nightly basis. Well, I actually <laughs> wish it did because Wagyu steak turns out to be one of the, you know, foods that we should be eating to support our health. But unfortunately, I was eating more of, you know, the processed foods, the breads, the pastas, the cereals. I was eating in the hospital a lot. And it turns out that the food that is served in hospitals, unfortunately, is not very healthy. I was eating more and more of the processed foods that, you know, all of us eat. And yes, I you know, certainly overindulged in them, overenjoyed them. But what I realized is the food itself makes us eat more. It turns out that these processed foods being devoid in the nutrition that our body is actually seeking actually make us eat more. And to turn this back to sort of a business discussion, yeah, the goal of the food industry is to make people eat more. That's how they make more money. That's their business. Their business is not keeping us healthy. And so the food that is all around us these days, the food that has been created over the past 50 years uh, to make people buy more food, eat more food, be hungry more, is what is causing us all to be so unhealthy. And it's what's caused the epidemic of obesity and heart disease and diabetes that we are seeing worldwide. So you've taken it on yourself to create a movement of keeping people off your your operating table. Uh, So you now have, you're now an employee of the hospital doing your operations. You have a business on the side that is coaching everyday Joe Public, if you like, to, as you say, stay off your operating table. How are you balancing those two? Have you have you said I'm only going to operate half the time, and the rest of the time I'm going to be a business, I'm going to be a life coach, or are you just working 24 hours a day? How does this work, Phil? Well, I do work a lot of hours of the day, but I have uh, changed a little bit. Uh, you know, my heart surgery part of my career. Um, what I ended up doing um, was leaving my employed position with one particular hospital. And instead, I now travel to hospitals throughout the United States that need help, need additional heart surgeons. And I'll travel, you know, for a week, maybe two weeks at a time or on a recurring basis. But that also gives me, you know, time that I'm not, you know, doing heart surgery and I can focus on the other aspect of my business as well. So how do you go about getting clients to your business? Because one is, you know, clients that need help. The other one is clients that, you know, need, well, need support, I guess. So how are you getting your, your coaching clients? Yeah, and that, you know, that is the challenge because this information that I am putting out there goes against 
the mainstream advice. It goes against the, the narrative. And so the challenge for me is getting that information to the people that need to hear it. And, you know, I've pursued a number of avenues. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I have a book that's coming out uh, shortly. I have a podcast. I have a blog on my website. I'm very active on social media, on Twitter. And, you know, it's not just me. There is a whole community now that has come to realize the importance of metabolic health, the, you know, kind of low carb, keto, all of these things, you know, they all tie together and they all overlap a lot. And so uh, I, quite frankly, coming on podcasts like this and just, you know, keep keep iterating. As you know, for any business person, it's important just keep trying things and some things are going to work and some things might not work. But uh, eventually, uh, you know, I try and get this message more and more to the people that need to hear it. Anything in particular, Phil, that's really landed for you where you've gone, oh, I need to do more of that because it's generating a lot of inquiry? I think social media, you know, is a very powerful tool. Uh, so I am very active on Twitter. My following, you know, continues to grow there. Uh, I also, you know, do some of the other platforms like Instagram. But I think, you know, that kind of just gets your gets your face out there and then people start seeing the message over and over and you know some of them go and buy the book uh some of them you know come and join my i sort of have a group coaching community called the stronger hearts society and that's a paid membership we do uh twice weekly calls uh where people will send me questions in advance that i'll answer i talk about you know the general concepts of what you need to do to keep your heart healthy, how to be metabolically healthy, a lot of the same information that is in my book. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a community that then they can draw on each other, they can interact with each other as well. Uh, so again, that's called the Stronger Hearts Society. It's at strongerhearts.co, and uh, that's open for anyone to join. One thing uh, that fascinates me about what you do is how available you make yourself. And again, I mean, I could be, maybe I'm just putting surgeons on a pedestal, but you are busy people and you've got to be very careful of how you spread yourself around. And so doing things like the, 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 the membership group, you also offer these free 15-minute telehealth calls on your website where you can go there, access your diary, um, and, and take an appointment with you for 15 minutes. Now, tell, tell us about why and how you do that. I'm guessing it's a, you know, it's not very scalable because it's just that it's just one on one. I imagine your conversion's high, and I imagine the whole premise of it is, yeah, you'll give some value, but the call to action at the end will be become a coaching client or join my membership group or buy my book. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And you know, so the the time balance, as you said, scaling this uh, certainly becomes the challenge. And you know, I have other. Other things that I am iterating on, you know, the book is obviously going to be, you know, very scalable. Anybody can buy that. There's going to be a course, you know, a self-directed course that will go along with the book as well. And then, you know, the membership community, for instance, gives me the opportunity to spend an hour interacting with 50 or 100 people at a time as opposed to my one-on-one -on -one hours. Um, but it does become a challenge. You know, my time is limited. 
in the end, one of the things that I hope to do is also influence other physicians. Uh, so I do, you know, deliver talks at medical meetings to try and get other physicians to realize that, you know, what we have gotten wrong about nutrition, what we have gotten wrong about our lifestyles that is leading so many people to become, you know, obese and diabetic and have heart disease. And hopefully, you know, they will then be able to teach more of their patients. And, uh, you know, this, this message will continue to spread. We have a neurosurgeon down here in Australia by the name of Dr. Charlie Teo. Does that ring any bells for you? No, I don't think I've come across him. Okay, he, he's um, he's considered quite the renegade. Um, in in fact, right now as we speak, you know, he's yeah, he's going through. How do I put it without getting into trouble? He suggests things. Uh, he'll he'll do operations that other neurosurgeons won't touch. He'll he'll just do things mm-hmm. that are considered against the ethos of what it is to become a surgeon. Um, and as a result, he gets a lot of press. And I think he's very divisive. You either love him or you hate him. It doesn't feel like you are as extreme as Dr. Charlie Teo, but you must be considered a bit of a rebel within the cardiac surgeon community in America. Would that be fair? Yeah, certainly. You know, I don't plan on being invited to uh, talk at the, you know, kind of national meetings for cardiologists and heart surgeons anytime soon. Uh, But I think, you know, that's, that's where revolution, that's where innovation comes from. Um, You know, when you look at the history of medicine, there were people who did things that were perceived to be crazy at the time. You know, you can go all the way back to a a physician called Semmelweis, who first suggested that washing your hands, you know, between patients uh, might be a good idea. And he was called crazy. He literally ended up in an insane asylum because he was so persecuted, um, you know, at the time. There were many other examples like that throughout medicine where, you know, it was the people who challenged the ingrained thoughts of the day, you know, what was accepted as the normal uh, needs to be challenged. That's the way that we move forward. That's the way we innovate. And when we find ourselves at a point where the vast majority of people are unhealthy. You know, in the United States, the statistic is that 88% of the adults in the United States are not metabolically healthy. And you have to stop and say, we must be doing something wrong and we have to challenge what we're doing. And yet, you know, for the most part, the mainstream is just continues in what they're doing because it's serving them well. Like I said, the food industry is doing great. The pharmaceutical industry is doing great. Hospitals are full. But at some point, someone has to start challenging that system and saying, why are we so unhealthy? And that is some of the, you know, those are the things that I am now starting to do. I hate to be be the negative guy in the room, but you and I think both know that there's always going to be heart surgery, right? Uh, there'll be heart surgery because there are some genetic things that you can't avoid and there'll be still heart surgery, I'm sure, in 100, 200 years' time. Well, maybe, maybe they'll just invent a pill. I don't know where, it, you know, that heart surgery could have been avoided. That said, what does real success look like to you? Let's say in 10 years' time, you've been on this, you know, you've created this movement, your passion you know, is well known throughout your industry, maybe throughout America as being that number one heart surgeon who doesn't really want to operate on you. 
Um, how are you going to judge that you are being successful? Uh, honestly, my judge of success is a generational issue. So what I really want to do and what will really you know, make me feel successful is if the children of the patients that I'm you know, dealing with are avoiding these problems, are not growing up obese, if we start to reverse that trend of increasing childhood obesity and you know, worsening uh, health you know, in our younger generation, that is truly going to be the measure of success for me. Mm, okay. Uh, what are you finding most difficult, Phil? You, and I mean across both businesses. So you are a cardiac surgeon, which appears to me to be incredibly difficult. And now you're running essentially a coaching business that requires a whole lot of different aspects of business that you don't employ in your, in your heart surgery life. What are you finding really hard? Yeah, I think probably the hardest thing is, you know, getting that message out that I'm trying to get out against the overwhelming narrative that speaks against it. You know, this is is literally the, uh, I am almost giving the exact opposite advice that, you know, all of the leading medical societies, the governments of the world, you know, give around nutrition. And, you know, as I said, I'm not alone. There are certainly many other physicians who are, are trying to get this, the uh, message out there. But that is a challenge that, you know, prevents, that presents a bit of a threat to me. You know, quite honestly, I could be at some point, and there have been other physicians who have had their medical licenses challenged because, you know, they were talking about some similar issues. So that is a challenge, that is a constant threat, but it's one that I'm willing to, you know, face and take on. You seem to be doing a great job of getting the message out there in terms of your content marketing. You know, it's it's pretty impressive. Like I said, podcast, blog, videos, newsletters, books, um, any particular uh, medium that I just mentioned there working better for you than the others. The book, which comes out what in another month, week's time, is it? Um, that's gonna that's yeah, gonna that, wonders for you. But any any what what content platform works best for you? Uh, you know, podcasts I really enjoy, um, and uh, I've been doing more and more of them. You know, I, I try and do a couple a week at this point. I certainly never thought I would be talking to people. You know literally around the world. And uh, here I am. So I really, you know, I enjoy the medium. I think it's great having an interactive discussion with curious people like yourself. And uh, I think that's a good way for me to get my message out to more and more people. And so, you know, that's what I uh, enjoy doing. What That's what I'm trying to do more and more. And, you know, launching my own podcast, then will give me the opportunity to have some of these same discussions with the people, you know, that I want to invite on and have those discussions with as well. What kind of support do you have, Phil, in terms of if you got, you don't know, marketing manager, social media manager, virtual assistant, customer support? Yeah, so I have a, I have a great sort of business coach and, uh, you know, he's basically my virtual chief operating officer. Uh, his name is Brian Keith. You can find him at uh, Redbeard Radio is uh, one of his platforms. And then I have a, I have a virtual assistant that I utilize uh, that helps, you know, get a lot of the content out there. I have a, you know, I have a whole team around the book, the, the editors and the, you know, marketers for the book uh, is sort of a, is a uh, separate aspect as well. And as the business grows, you know, I hope to be bringing on additional physicians maybe into the practice or, you know, uh, physician assistants or, 
you know, what we call nurse practitioners here in the States. But, you know, it's all a matter of seeing where it goes and, and where the need is and, and what's going to uh, help me. But uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a strong network of support that I draw upon, you know. What's the balance between operating and coaching? And do you see a, po- a, t- a point in time where operating actually becomes maybe 10% or no percent of what you do? Yeah, you know, I think ultimately it probably will get that way. Right now it's probably about 80% operating and 20%, you know, the coaching and private business. But that, uh, you know, continues to shift. I mean, a year ago, it was 100% operating and no private business. So, um, and as the book comes out and, and my message gets out there, I certainly see it shifting more and more. Uh, I love operating. I love being able to help people in that way. I'm not really looking to give it up anytime soon, but, you know, we will, we will see where this all leads. You know what many surgeons get wrong? Bedside matter. How's yours? Uh, I like to think it's excellent. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, I think uh, here I am out here doing sort of this, and this is very similar to my bedside manner. You know, I, I try and just be open with people and and uh, have a good conversation with them. So uh, I think I do okay on that front. But I do agree with you. Many many surgeons don't. I had a uh, really interesting experience about five weeks ago. I had some minor spinal surgery. I had to have a cyst removed from my lumbar spine, so it wasn't too bad, but it was causing me a lot of discomfort. And it got to the point, uh, I'll try and keep this story short because this is your interview, but I'd be very interested in your opinion on this. It got to the point where the pain was so bad, I had to seek an emergency appointment from a neurosurgeon somewhere, you know, sort of the next day. Uh, And... I'd been given a number of neurosurgeons' names in Queensland, the state where I live in Australia, and I thought, okay, one of them kept, his name kept on popping up the most. So I Googled him and up came a website called MedRate or RateMed.com where you can rate neuro or you can rate any, any surgeons across any category. And my fellow came up number nine as the best, the ninth best neurosurgeon in Queensland. I'm going, oh, that's not great. I wonder who number one is. So I look at number one and I contacted this fellow who subsequently gave me an opinion that I didn't really like. It was spinal reconstruction and all, you know, it was, it was a big procedure as well as removing this cyst. And I'm like, I think I need a second opinion on that. And my second opinion came through that I just need to get the cyst removed and I will be okay and I did that, and I am. It was a complete success. On further investigation, it would appear that these rate med or med rate type websites where you can rate surgeons, some of the surgeons, and I'm sure this happens across many industries, write their own testimonials and give their own reviews, which is incredibly misleading because I could have easily, if I hadn't have got that second opinion, gone down this god-awful you know, spinal reconstruction, which I didn't need to have. Is this something you hear about over your end of the world? And Yeah, certainly it does go on. Um, you know, rating doctors is always sort of a challenge because, you know, unfortunately as physicians, we sometimes need to tell people things that they are not happy to hear, they don't want to hear. And then, as you know, you know, in and I think this goes for many industries, you know, the patients that tend to go to those websites to rate their doctors tend to be the ones that 
are unhappy with things. Uh, you know, they get a bad outcome that that may or may not be the fault of the physician. Um, you know, and so there's a lot of you know there's obviously a lot of factors that go into is the patient happy in the end. And, you know, it, it, would they rate their physician, you know, highly? Uh, so I'm always a little suspicious of those, uh, you know, medical rating sites. I think like everything else, you know, the best way to find a, a good physician is to ask around, find out who the people you interact with, you know, you know, if they have similar issues or, you know, it depends obviously what you're looking for, um, but, you know, who they've been happy with. You know, and, and we also need to realize that there is a lot in medicine that is not black and white. Phil, uh, I like to speak, ask my guests at the end of a chat about work-life balance uh, and how they're going with it. Sure. I I get a sense that your work-life balance may be not so balanced, or or maybe it is. There is that new term people are using called work-life blend, but you're traveling around the States, visiting various hospitals, operating there. You're building a coaching business. Um, I guess, how is your work-life balance? You happy with it? Yeah, I actually am. I think, you know, I do put that extra effort in to make sure that my family you know, is prioritized. And working in the way that I do as a heart surgeon, well, yes, I may be away for a week at a time, but then I'm home for a week without having to be, you know, on call at the hospital. Uh, And in the past, you know, when I was working, you know, employed at the hospital where I lived, um, you're sort of always on call to the hospital. So the work-life balance actually wasn't that good back then. And now it turns out all right. And, you know, I make sure that when I am on the road, you know, I block out some time to be able to call each morning and each evening and talk to my children and talk to my wife, uh, you know, unless there's a true dire emergency that I'm in the operating room, uh, which, of course, you know, they understand. But I, I do think that's important. Um, and, you know, for the business owners that you talk to, that you serve, that is an important part of staying healthy. I think if you're always stressed, if you're not in proper balance, you know, that is one of the things that ends up damaging your blood vessels and causing you, you know, to have heart disease and causing, you know, poor metabolic health. So I think that is a very important aspect of life. And I try, I do my best. It's obviously not easy, but I I think I've found a place where I do have a decent balance. It's dinner time where you are. Phil, what's on the menu? Uh, steak. That's <laughs> I thought it might be the case. Almost always on the menu for me. Steak and three veg. I love it. Uh, <laughs> Phil, thank you so much for sharing these insights. I find it really fascinating uh, where you're going with your career. I wish you all the luck. If people want to find out more about Dr. Phil, ovadiaheartheath.com is his website. Stay Off My Operating Table is his book that he's launching on Amazon. And by the time this episode goes live, it, I think it should be out November. What's the date, Phil, for the book launch? Uh, the release date is November 11th, but it should be up for pre-sale by the time this episode comes out. Awesome. And all other information around Dr. Phil, you'll find at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 575. Hey, Phil, thanks for reaching out. Been a great chat. Thank you, Tim. This has been fun. Well, there you go, team. Dr. Philip Ovadia. Do you enjoy that? I find his career progression from heart surgeon to wellbeing coach fascinating, brave, and absolutely admirable. Anyone who chases their purpose, I think, is like on the right track. If you're on the right track, if you're on purpose, I'd love to hear from you. Email me, tim at timreed.com.au. 
Tell me. Uh, here's my top three attention grabbers from that chat with Dr. Phil. Attention grabber number one. Do what brings you joy and flow, even if it means initially earning less than you are right now. Attention grabber number two. Embrace and respect the power of marketing. You probably do because you're listening to this podcast, so well done. But here's a guy in Dr. Phil who's a heart surgeon by trade with little business or marketing knowledge, yet the mix of marketing tools he's using to get noticed and understood and educate his prospects into an informed decision is pretty interesting and pretty amazing and pretty admirable. Attention grabber number three. I love Dr. Phil's offer of a 15-minute telehealth call. Although not scalable, such a great way to build initial inquiry and conversion into a new business idea. And good on him for doing it. You know, as a surgeon, he could go, so I'm I'm above that. I'm not going to do these one-on-one telehealth calls for free. But he does because he's grinding it out and building a business. That's what grabbed my attention. I would desperately love to know what grabbed yours. Write this number down and give us a buzz. In fact, put it in your phone. Here you go, open your phone up and whack it in under Small Business Big Marketing Hotline. You ready? For overseas guests, add a plus six one, drop the zero. For locals, 0480-015-150. Give us a buzz. Got up to five minutes. I'd love to hear from you. Just like listener Mitch of The Common Collector did. Hey, Tim. My name's Mitch, mate. I uh, run a niche collectors uh, group basically called The Common Collector. We sell a lot of niche collectibles and I'm just branching out into a marketplace after listening to your podcast with Marketplacer. And um, I just want to just listen to Leroy's uh, podcast that you've just done and I just really hit home with it because I, like my passion is people. I, I really believe in sales are your, your community and your people. And um, I really make sure that I do the same thing. I, in my Facebook group, we have about um, about to hit, or just near on 1,300 people, and we reach out. Um, I make sure I, all of my posts and all of my comments are from my personal account, um, so people know that they're not talking to someone uh, random. They're talking to someone that owns the business and that's um, involved in the business. And um, I get people tag me in... Uh, recommendations and the business and recommendations on other Facebook groups and pages. So I strongly believe that relationship is the key to sales and um, that's something that I love. So I also just wanted to give you a um, a wrap, mate. What you're doing is awesome and for my regular job, I'm able to uh, travel a lot and so I can generally fit in about three or four of your podcasts a day, which is quite a lot of information to take in, but it challenges me listening to these guys where I can, um, and girls, uh, where I can listen to the way they run their business and what they do and it allows me to challenge myself in ways to grow my business and ask myself how I can adapt every one of these podcasts to grow my business because uh, obviously it's working for these people so why can't it work for me so yeah mate I just wanted to thank you for what you're doing keep it up you're doing an awesome job and um, yeah I'll talk to you soon Hey, Mitch, thank you so much, buddy, for taking the time to leave a message and for listening to my podcast on a regular basis. You sound like a young fellow having a crack with a side hustle, so well done to you, and an even bigger well done on consuming as much marketing information as you can and implementing it. As you said, buddy, obviously it works for my guests' businesses, so why can't it work for yours? So true, so true. 
I don't think a lot of the marketing ideas shared on here are like groundbreaking, you know. It's not, not rocket science. I was going to say it's not heart surgery. <laughs> that would be more appropriate. Uh, but it is. The magic is in the implementation. So well done to you, Mitch. Thank you for your message. Next episode, you and I meet the ex-captain of the greatest sporting team in the world. <laughs> Can you be teary? Okay, okay. I may be a bit biased, but I have to say this guy was a legend in his day. I won't say who it is, but what I can tell you is that he's gone on to create a wine brand that's mission is to save the world's oceans. And it's a really interesting discussion we have around, you know, whether every business should attach themselves to a cause, both from a commercial reality reason and it's just a nice idea. Hey, if you'd love to know how and why to create some helpful marketing in your business, then grab a copy of my book, The Boomerang Effect, over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. I'd love you to leave a message on the hotline. Just love to hear from you. And I might play it on an upcoming episode, 0480-015-150. Uh, if you're loving the podcast, guess what? There's 574 more episodes over in the uh, in the archive. So uh, download the Listener app. That's a great place to sort of... Um, Put all your podcasts in one place and mine at the top. And remember, I've got a second podcast called Marketing in Minutes, which you'll also find over at Listener, L-I-S-T-N-R. As has been the case for the past 12 years, this podcast was presented by me, Timbo Reed. The opening jingle bashed out by keyboard player Lockie Dolly. He'll be playing alongside Pink Floyd's Roger Waters next year on tour. We're going to get him on uh, later this year. Lockie, not Roger, although I am going to look... I'm going to try hard to get Roger on at some point to hear how that job, and it is a job, came about. And then this whole cacophony is made sense of by my wonderful producer, Romy Sher. Amazing. Don't know how you do it, Rom. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. May your marketing be the absolute best marketing. Bye for now.